Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm podcast editor Rowan Hooper. Now this week we've got something a bit different. It's the last show of the year as we're having a break next week. And as a lovely treat, we're giving you edited highlights of the New Scientist Christmas special live holiday event that we had this week. And as befits 2020 in general, and live events in particular, uh, this turned into quite a chaotic panel show, quiz of the year type thing, with me as quizmaster and panellists drawn from New Scientist staff. So we had journalists Lyle Liverpool, Graham Lawton, Penny Sarchet and Sam Wong. Now, if you want to see us in action, we recorded it. So you can watch the event. Uh, so just go to newscientist.com slash events and you'll find it. Otherwise, do enjoy these highlights. The contestants have different methods of buzzing their answers or I'm just going to call on them for their response in different categories. Now, in the first category, the first round, this is funniest story of the year. And Sam is the first to answer. Sam. Back in January, uh, a more innocent time, um, a team from Royal Holloway, University of London, recreated the voice of an Egyptian mummy called Neziamun, who is a priest who lived more than 3,000 years ago during the reign of uh, Ramses XI. Uh, they used CT scans to image the vocal tract and make a 3D printed model of it uh, and used an electronic larynx to generate sound. But the, the mummy can only make one sound, which is the sound of his vocal tract as he's reclining in his coffin with his head tilted back. So I'm going to try and play that sound for you now. Uh. Here it is one more time. Uh. Uh. So on the one hand, it's amazing that the, the soft tissues are so well preserved that they can do this at all. But also it's, it's a very weird thing to try and do. And the story doesn't give any reason why they've done it. Uh, as far as I know, it's just sort of curiosity. And it's great when scientists are able to do silly things like this. But it is, it's definitely a funny noise. And it's a bit sad that we've re recreated the voice of somebody who's lived uh, so long ago. But the only thing you can say is, ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of relate to that, to be honest. Um, great. Lyle, what have you got? Okay. Uh, okay. For me, the funniest story uh, was one, a quite recent one about hungry caterpillars. So this was about monarch caterpillars that started headbutting each other and lunging at one another uh, when food was scarce. And there's a really brilliant video of these hungry caterpillars headbutting each other over food, uh, over a leaf, I think. Uh, but this is also very serious and important science. Uh, the researchers studying these animals are hoping that it will help them to learn more about the genetic basis for aggression. Uh, very good. Okay, hungry caterpillars. Uh, Penny, what have you got? The one that really made me laugh, other than I've forgotten the, the mummy and Jacob 
uh, our deputy news editor was just crying with laughter <laughs> next to me the first time um, we heard that. So thanks for transporting me back to happier times, Sam. Um, besides that, my favourite funniest story was the Ulm, uh, which is a type of salamander that was found to have uh, sat in the same spot for I think seven years um, so this was a study of salamanders in a cave in Bosnia Herzegovina and um, they captured recaptured uh, these animals over a period of nine years um, most of them didn't move very much but this one particular salamander um, stayed on the same rock it seems for it was 2000 uh, what was it 2569 days which is funny in itself but what really tickled me was people's responses to this online um so it, it went pretty viral on social and we had readers chiming in with like hashtag goals or it me but my favorite was um all the people being like um new scientists can you respect my privacy please and i think it just really <laughs> chimed with people in the middle of lockdown when we'd all been sat in the same spot for a really long time yeah another story i can relate to very much there um graham what have you got i bring great news friends it turns out scientists in Canada have invented a, a sobering up machine. Now, we didn't actually report this story, which is inexplicable because it's the greatest story of the year. And it's so appropriate for this time of year, because normally if you drink too much alcohol, there's nothing you can do but wait for your liver to clear it. But you also excrete a little bit of alcohol in your breath. And these scientists have worked out a way to allow people to hyperventilate, which normally makes you pass out quite quickly without passing out. And you just excrete ah. all the alcohol in your breath. And obviously, it's very serious because it's designed for people who are at risk of alcohol poisoning. But they do say it could be turned into like a consumer device that you could carry around with you. And if you have one too many, you can just pop out the back of the pub and hyperventilate for a few minutes and get rid of all the alcohol. I'll read you a quote from the lead researcher. He said, it's a very basic low tech device that could be made anywhere in the world. No electronics, no computers or filters are required. It's almost inexplicable that we didn't try this before. Like you need a, like a cardiac revival kit, you know. It sounds pretty nasty thing to force upon yourself if, you, if you're drunk. Yeah, it's possibly better than having a terrible hangover, though. It'll be about a briefcase-sized device that you can just carry around with you when you go to the pub. Did they measure it okay. against any kind of control, like a bag of chips or something? <laughs> the old bag of chips technique. No, I don't... I. Do you know what? I didn't read the research paper in that much detail, but uh, now that you've asked, that's a classic news editor question, isn't it? I'm sorry. <laughs> the next round is Animal Story of the Year, with extra points for amusement value, cuteness or grossness. Penny goes first in this round. Penny. In August, uh, there was this analysis that came out that showed that actually, contrary to what we thought, many female birds uh, do as much birdsong as male birds, which is actually counter to what we've thought for a long time. We, we generally tend to think of male birds as being more interesting in all, all kinds of ways. So this is really cool in itself because very more birdsong, more interesting behaviour to study. Um, but what the analysis did was it showed that um, our discovery that uh, birds song is actually widespread amongst female birds has really tracked along um, as more and more women have come into the field of ornithology and the analysis uh, sort of demonstrates that if it was still so gender biased towards men in ornithology 
it would have been many, many years before we actually started to realise that female birds sing too. And this blows my mind because um, there's no reason that we should be that biased because if you think about it, the only thing that men have in common with male birds is that biologically male humans can't get pregnant and male birds can't lay eggs. That's all they've got in common. And yet that blinded male ornithologist uh, seeing that females can also be interesting too. And I'm not saying, I'm not using this as a stick to beat uh, the male uh, part of our species. I, who knows, uh, females are probably just as biased too. But as well as learning about birds, I think it really tells us that we as humans over-relate to things to such a degree that um, it, it just really cracks me up. Um, Sam, what have you got? I've chosen a story which just feels like it, it sort of sums up 2020 in a way. The animals that are the, the emblem of the year are, have got to be the vampire bats. And this isn't because they are the uh, the possible source of the coronavirus, but because they do social distancing when they get ill. Um, so these bats, they're normally very sociable. They groom each other a lot and uh, they share food, by which I mean regurgitate uh, blood into each other's mouths. Um, so that's some gro- gross points. And some researchers wanted to see how their behavior would change if they uh, get uh, ill. So they injected them with a bacterial toxin. And the sick bats, they were less chatty, so they didn't call out to each other as much. And they didn't groom each other as much, although they did continue to um, to share food. Um, because it's just, you know, it's too important for them to, they still need food and they still... Uh, need to look out for the other bats that don't have as much food. So um, it does seem like they are possibly making some effort to reduce their interactions with each other. But it's possible that that it's just the case that the the sick bats are feeling fatigued and not very well. And and that's the reason that they're, they're not actually looking out for each other. But the, the nice interpretation is these bats uh, have understood that they shouldn't pass on illness to each other and uh, we should learn from the vampire bats. Great. Socially distancing vampire bats. I like it. Um, Graham, animal story of the year. Oh, for me, it's uh, it's got to be the diabolical ironclad beetle. It's one of 28 species of ironclad beetle that live in North America. And as the name suggests, they've got this really tough exoskeleton. And in fact, if a collector wants to pin one of these, they often have to drill through it first before they can get it to get the pins going. And the diabolical ironclad beetle is the toughest of all of the ironclad beetles. And so earlier this year, scientists at the University of California, they wanted to know just how tough is the diabolical ironclad beetle. So they decided to run it over with some cars, <laughs> which <laughs> you would have thought they would have got a VW beetle, but they didn't. They missed a trick there. They used a Toyota and they were very specific about it being a Toyota. I'm not quite sure why they had to point out yeah. that it was a Toyota. Anyway, they ran over the beetle in the Toyota a few times. And the Beetle was absolutely fine. I've, I'm not sure what happened to the Toyota. You should have seen the other guy sort of thing. But anyway, yeah. di- but Diamond got Ironclad Beetle all the way for me. Okay, great. Um, yeah, love an, in- love an insect story. Lyle, you're next. I think we definitely need to talk about that ancient squid-like creature that looked like a giant paperclip. So this was a story we had about uh, an animal called Diplomoceras maximum. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Uh, It lived about 68 million years ago, so around the same time as uh, the dinosaur T-Rex. And this ancient squid-like animal was about a meter and a half long uh, and had a long lifespan of 200 years. But most importantly, it was shaped like a paperclip. (laughs) That's what I took away. Now it's time for the music round. Contestants have played a piece of music and have to say what it is and what the link to science is. 
Yeah, that was Penny. Um, Penny, go go for it. Is this Conrad, our head of digital, uh, playing the first climate change song on his trombone? That's absolutely right. So that's yeah. a that's a blues standard by uh, the American musician Bessie Smith, uh, and she recorded that in. It's called Backwater Blues. She recorded it in 1927 about flooding in Louisiana and Tennessee. And uh, yeah, so we're calling it first climate change song uh, from 1927. Uh, let's have number two, please. Oh, don't know who's first. Let's go with Graham. Give you a chance. I'm guessing that's Aphex Twin. Yes, yeah. That's all I've got. Uh, <laughs> that's all I've got. <laughs> Can I jump in with the, the significance? Is it to do with um, MIDI? Uh, there was a story this year about the new version of MIDI, MIDI 2.0, and Aphex Twin, I think, are, are um, pioneers of electronic music, and um, and I can't remember exactly what the link I, was, I, I, but I'll, they may I'll be. I'll help you out. So the story is that um, MIDI 2.0 is going to allow it to be much more easy to make microtones, which uh, are, what are they, Penny? Like sem- like they're in between semitones on a musical scale, right? Yeah, it's kind of quarter or less, and, and they're very close yeah. together. Yeah, and they make weird yeah. effects when you hear them at the same time. Right. So um, Aphex Twin pioneered the use of, of microtones. Uh, thanks to Warp Records, by the way, for letting us play that. But now it's going to be much easier with MIDI 2.0 to make microtone music yourself. Uh, can we have clip three, please? Uh, that's Graham again. Wild Horses, go for it. So this is a song that I think was recorded on the International Space Station. It's a Russian ballad about missing home or something like that. Is that right? Aww. It's partially right. Yeah, well done. It's a, it is a Russian ballad. It's not about missing home. It's about, um, it's about working together and collaboration. And it was recorded by Russian, German and American astronauts aboard the ISS. And uh, we, we, we're playing that this year to mark... 20 years of international collaboration on the space station. So, uh, yeah, well done, Graham. Uh, And clip four, please. (laughs) Sam. Hello. So, um... (laughs) I think that is um, that was on the podcast this week. In fact, um, so it was a Norwegian uh, musician who's discovered micro meteorites on his roof. Perfect, well done. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's John Larson, who's um, a famous jazz guitarist in Norway. Uh, his band is called Hot Club de Norvège. Uh, that's one of his pieces of music. Um, but as well as being a jazz musician, he is a yeah, as you say, he's a micro meteorite hunter, and he's found and he's demonstrated that. Uh, micrometeorites, so these small fragments from the early solar system are constantly kind of raining down um, and that it's possible for us all to find them. And that, uh, that's the story we've got this week. So well done. The next round is evidence-based survival tips for 2021 or for the holiday period or for the modern world in general. Sam, off you go. For the Christmas issue of the magazine, I've written a column about um, Brussels sprouts and how you can uh, best enjoy them. I think Brussels sprouts are great. 
but I understand lots of people uh, don't. They find them very bitter. So uh, I managed to dig up some studies about ways that you can maybe find them a bit less bitter or in- enjoy them. Particularly children seem to find them a problem. So one study they gave children aged three to five Brussels sprouts every day for 14 days as a snack. Uh, <laughs> some of them got Brussels sprouts on their own and some of them got Brussels sprouts with some cream cheese to dip it in. And then on the 15th day, everybody got Brussels sprouts on their own and they were asked if they liked them. Um, and the children who had been eating, eating Brussels sprouts on their own all along, only a quarter of them said that they liked the taste. But the group who had been trained with the cream cheese, 72% said they liked Brussels sprouts. So you can train yourself to like the thing you don't like by eating it with the thing that you do like. So that's my number one tip. Um, another study okay. um, said that if you drink red wine with um, with the Brussels sprouts, um, they taste less bitter. And they compared it with drinking uh, water and drinking gravy, but they didn't have the same effect. So um, what they think is happening is that the tannins in the red wine, which are these phenolic compounds that have this astringent effect, they make you uh, have a, a sort of dry sensation on the inside of your mouth. They interfere with the clumping of proteins in your saliva, and it's possible they uh, interfere as well with the distribution of the bitter compounds in the mouth. So have some red wine with your Brussels sprouts. Um, I won't need very much encouragement to do that uh, on Christmas Day, but um, that may help you enjoy the Brussels sprouts a bit more. So those are my evidence-based tips on enjoying Brussels sprouts. Fantastic. Um, Moving on. Uh, Lyle, what have you got? What's your tip? My tip is that we should all squat more. So this is based on the idea that sitting more actively or in more active positions, um, like squatting, might be better for our health, uh, which we covered in a feature uh, on sitting this year in the magazine. Um, There's some evidence from studies of people in the Hadza community in Tanzania that they seem to have managed to avoid heart diseases and other diseases that have become more prevalent um, in the industrialized world, even though they spend lots of time sitting down. So researchers are now wondering whether it's because they tend to sit in more active positions like squatting or kneeling on the ground. And I'm very aware that I am not sitting in an active position right now. This is my advice. Do as I say, not as I do. Squat. Okay. Try and squat some more (laughs) next year. Uh, Penny. Um, so this is an idea that I, I came across at a conference last year on eco-anxiety, but I think it's more widely um, applicable. It's this idea that you know, you're going to be the most happiest that you can be if you know what your principles are and you live in accordance with them. So if you're really worried about climate change, you're going to feel better if you don't eat loads of meat and you're not getting on planes all the time and you try to live in accordance with your concerns. And I think we can apply this to many more things. So I would stress, obviously, uh, follow local guidelines and government rules. But um, we've written a bit, uh, Claire Wilson has written quite a lot for us about um, in the pandemic, one thing that we really have to do is work out um, our own acceptable level of risk, what we're willing to tolerate. And, uh, you know, if you're a very risk averse person, there's quite a social pressure at times to, to try and compromise that and go out of your comfort zone or Um, And then there's all the way across the spectrum. But actually, if uh, you know that you are really risk averse or medium or whatever, live in accordance with that um, in in, obviously according to the rules. And you're more likely to be happy than if you're having to compromise all the time and and not live up to your beliefs, because um, that's just so uh, socially stressful and, and difficult to live with. So I think this is something we can apply to many aspects of our delightful modern world. 
Great. Graham, what's your uh, your tip for survival? Well, I don't know if, how many of you have ever worked in a pub or cafe or restaurant. Um, I have. Uh, I'm sure many of us did when we were students. Now, I'm sure you also know that the, they're not they're particularly thorough about washing their glasses and their eating utensils and so on. And so... In this day and age, we really don't want to be eating. We don't want to be eating from spoons and forks or drinking out of glasses that other people have recently been putting into their mouths. So I think what we need to do is mm. all to have a little hamper with a pint glass in it and some a knife and fork. And also, I think we need condiment bottles in there because, you know, uh, when you pick up a bottle of ketchup on a table in a cafe and squeeze it, and then you think, well, how many how many people have touched that before me? And did they wash their hands? And someone disinfected the bottle. So I think what we need is like a we should we should get this in the new scientist shop. A little hamper with a pint glass, a knife, a fork, and a, a little bottle of ketchup and a little bottle of mayonnaise. Or if you're from the north, a little bottle of ketchup and a bottle of brown sauce. That would be lovely, wouldn't it? A bit <laughs> like bringing your own booze to a restaurant, but you bring your own sauces. Now it's time for the moment of greatest hope this year. And Penny, you're first. This was a story much earlier this year um, that uh, we already know that, of course, your hair can uh, turn grey in times of great stress. Um, but not to fear, it turns out it can also regain its colour again. So this this was a great study. Uh, they looked at people who went through periods of stress and uh, quite a lot of them then regained some of the colour in their hair. Um, so there was one person who went on a holiday after a particularly stressful time and suddenly the colour came back. Uh, another person got over the stress of their divorce and, and again, their, their colour came back into their grey hairs. So for all of us, it's quite nice to think that there will be a time when this is over and we can start recovering from the stress of it all. Yeah, I'm surprised my hair isn't completely white, actually, after this year. Um, Lyle, what's uh, your moment of greatest hope in the year? For me, like this this year, several of the big tech companies seem to have really woken up to the problem of racial bias in facial recognition software. Uh, and in June, uh, Microsoft and Amazon announced that they'd be preventing or, or trying to limit the use of their facial recognition systems uh, by police in the U.S. And that really gave me hope that in future we'll start seeing more focus on developing tech that can really work for all of us. Yeah, can't argue with that. That's a great one. Um, Sam? My uh, moment of hope this year was um, in the summer when we were allowed to go on holiday again, I went to um, the Neff Estate in Sussex, which is an area that used to be farmland until about 2001. And, and then it, since then, it's been a, a rewilding project. So now it's teeming with wildlife. Um, and uh, this year, this, this first storks to breed in England in 500 years have bred there. So when I went yeah. there, I came out of my tent in the morning and saw all these about 12 or so storks just swooping around overhead. And it was just um, amazing. I, I've seen storks before in Kenya, but just never would have thought that you would be able to see them in England. And um, that's, there have been a few kind of stories this year about rewilding projects going well. There are some white-tailed eagles that um, were released in the Isle of Wight last year that are, are now doing quite well. Um, the pine martin, as well as coming back in certain places. Beavers, uh, they've, they've actually reintroduced beavers at NEP as well, quite recently, following on from projects in Devon. And uh, red kites were, were reintroduced in England 30 years ago, but there's now 2,000 breeding pairs. So it, my, my moment of hope was kind of being able to see uh, these species that um, we haven't seen in a long time and see how much wildlife can return when you, when you give the area back to nature and uh, hoping that you know, we can restore these ecosystems uh, and hopefully we can do that on a, on a bigger scale uh, in the years to come. Brilliant. Um, great. Uh, Graham, what's your moment of hope? 
absolutely here here for rewilding. Let's just hear this one last time. The sound of the wild. So for me, um, back in sort of January, February, when when virologists realised that the new pneumonia was being caused by a coronavirus, their hearts absolutely sank because we know that coronaviruses are uh, very slippery viruses. They're really not very good at stimulating the immune system. A lot of common colds are caused by coronaviruses and we don't get immune to common colds. We don't have a vaccine for common colds. And it was really a heart sinker. But then in about June, uh, I was reporting a story about the immune system's response to SARS-CoV-2 and immunologists kept on telling me, we think we're going to be able to get a strong immune response to this virus. And that means we can probably have a vaccine. And that was a real moment for me of relief and belief that we were actually going to be able to get out of the mess that we were in. And I would never have guessed at that point that we would have a vaccine today but we do and this is fantastic news final round is a speculative one it's the story you're most hoping for in 2021 and we start with penny here it's been amazing this year to actually see pharmaceutical firms governments researchers everyone come together as quickly as possible to really accelerate the science it was a shame that we already knew that this was a massive threat and uh, we've been warned for decades that we needed to prepare for it and most countries didn't. There's another crisis like that looming, which is antibiotic resistance. Uh, we really know this is a problem. Um, we really haven't been doing very much about it. But I, I, you know, the hopeful part of me is really hopeful that now that we've shown just how quickly and focused and uh, internationally collaborative we can be at developing new diagnostics, coming up with new therapeutics, it makes me think maybe once we've got this whole coronavirus thing licked, we could actually get on with solving the problem of antimicrobial resistance before it's way too late. Well, yeah, I hope you're right. You know, if, if, if there's one lesson we can get from this year, it might be that we need to get ahead of the game on all these other problems we've got. Sam. OK, so uh, earlier Graham told us about um, a new invention that would help people to sober up if they uh, got a bit too drunk. Um, but I'm hoping that we can go one better and come up with um, a version of alcohol that doesn't uh, that gets you, you know, nice and tipsy and merry, but doesn't get you hung over or have kind of toxic effects. And this sounds like a fantasy, but um, David Nutt at Imperial College London says he's actually developed a, a synthetic alcohol substitute that works like this. Apparently, the, the alcohol works on a number of different receptors in the brain, and you can target some of them and not other ones so that it has nice effects, but isn't none of the nasty effects. And it's metabolized differently. So you don't get hungover and it doesn't, it's not toxic to the liver. David Nutt's actually been talking about this for quite a few years now. I think it was five or six years yeah. ago when I first heard him talking about it. And he's, um, he's, he's been trying to get investment to bring this to market. Apparently, one of the challenges is that it doesn't taste very nice. So um, my hope for 2021 is that he's finally managed to work with a drinks company on a product that uh, tastes nice and works well and uh, is able to bring it to market. Because at some point this year, uh, I hope we'll be able to have parties again. And it would be nice if we could all get enjoyably merry without um, punishing consequences. Um, I'm obviously hoping for aliens. Uh, in 2021, I hope we'll figure out what's going on uh, up in the clouds of Venus. Is there phosphine? Isn't there? Where are the aliens? Uh, and in case that doesn't work out, I thought maybe we can shift focus to one of those like five billion um, habitable planets in our galaxy. Okay, good. Yeah, I'd love to see that story next year. 
Um, who have we got left? Graham. Yeah, so we've had some really big breakthroughs in lab-grown meat this year. So what I'm hoping for in 2021 is something quite similar, but lab-grown milk. Uh, so that means I can go back to eating cheese uh, without feeling guilty. Uh, as you may remember, I wrote a notorious story for New Scientist a couple of years ago about how dreadful for the environment and animal welfare uh, the cheese yeah. industry is. People stop yeah, I do remember it. <laughs> It haunts me every time I eat cheese. But now we know that we yeah. can make lab-grown milk, so I'm hoping that we're going to get that in enough quantities to start making some delicious, cruelty-free, environmentally-friendly cheese that I can tuck into next Christmas without feeling really guilty about it. That's it. To find out who won, you'll have to watch the show at newscientist.com slash events. But look, everyone is the winner here. It's not about winning, it's about getting the science out there. Thanks to our contestants and thanks to you for listening. Throughout the whole year, actually, you've been fantastic and we've been thrilled with the success of the show in this, our first year. Uh, And that's massively down to you guys, our fantastic audience. Finally, you can get a special holiday discount subscription to New Scientist by going to newscientist.com slash pod 20. So go there and give yourself a treat. Have a great holiday and we'll be back on January the 1st with a preview of the coming year. Ho, ho, ho. This podcast is produced by Oli Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.